Continuing in our series in Mark is from Mark 10. We're going to start in verse 32. Uh, The they that it starts with is the disciples. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, What was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we are here to hear God's word. Uh, Not only just to hear it but to be transformed by it. So let's pray. Father, we need you to speak by your word. But we know it is by your word that your spirit works in your people. So speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A little while back, I... Recently, I was watching the movie Almost Famous. I don't know if you know this movie. It's, it's like 20 years old. Um, it is, it's by Cameron Crowe, and it's, it's, all, it's kind of autobiographical, uh, but it tells the story of a, a kid in the early 70s. He's a teenager who had been writing sort of freelance uh, rock and roll reviews for local papers and gets hired sight unseen and you know, unbeknownst to them that he's a teenager, by Rolling Stone to to do to follow a band around and do a profile, which is kind of actually what happened to Cameron Crowe when he was a teenager. But it's another story. In the movie, uh, this this young this teenager is going around with this band, and he's but he's also made friends with this guy Lester Bangs, who was a influential rock critic in the '70s, and uh, it's play, he's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's an amazing performance. And he's warning, he's warning him up front. He says, look, they're going to want to buy you off. 
They're going to pretend they're your friends, but all they really want is for you to look cool. And looking cool is what is killing rock and roll, is sort of his message to him at the beginning. Um, and then near the end, when, rock, when Rolling Stone has finally figured out that he is a teenager, and they're deeply regretting their decision, and he's trying to finish up the, the uh, profile on the band, he's, uh, he's on late at night on the phone with Lester, and Lester says, you made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. They want you to get drunk on feeling like you belong. But the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what we share with somebody when we're uncool. The currency of rock and roll was coolness. The currency, at some point in your life, the currency that you trade in is coolness. Kind of can't avoid it at some point. Maybe you no longer think about coolness as the currency of life. Um... Maybe, maybe it's literal, literally currency, how much money you have. Uh, maybe it is prestige. Maybe it is respect. Whatever it may be, we are constantly thinking about life as how much we have, how much we have gained, how much we stack up against other people, and what kind of influence we have over others. But Jesus and the kingdom that he's bringing challenge all that. And what we see unfold here in this story, as Jesus holds out what that kingdom looks like, we see three different responses. We see fear, frenzy, and focus. Fear, frenzy, and focus. The fear is obvious enough among the people that are following Jesus. Do you notice in verse 32, we get a little um, description of this group as they're traveling. You've got, they are on their way, we've been saying this along the way here, the second half of Mark is a, a trip down to Jerusalem, and then of course Jesus last week in Jerusalem. Uh, so the last half of Mark really takes just a few weeks uh, in time, and they're on their way, in fact they're, they're turning towards Jerusalem saying they're going up, so they've been going down the Jordan River Valley And now they're going up into the mountains to get to Jerusalem. They're getting close. And Jesus is at the front of this group. And then the disciples are behind him. And then there's the followers. The people following Jesus. And we get hints of this along the way all throughout Mark and the other Gospels. Is that there was some larger group of people that were interested, right? The disciples had left everything. And they followed Jesus around full time. But there was a much bigger group of people who were very interested in what Jesus was doing, but they hadn't quit their jobs. (laughs) They were working. And Jesus spent most of his ministry just going around the lake, the Sea of Galilee, you know, this lake up in the north of Israel. And so as Jesus would come near, they would, as they had time, they'd go listen, right? Um, So there was this group of followers, but Jesus is on the way down to Jerusalem for the great pilgrimage of Passover, and nobody in the ancient world wants to travel alone. It's really dangerous to be, you're on foot, uh, traveling in pretty unoccupied areas. So you want to travel in a group. And what a better way than to travel with the rabbi. But what we've started to note, and what we're definitely going to hear a lot more about in the next two weeks, is that people are starting to whisper that maybe Jesus is Messiah. 
Jesus might just be the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word, right? Jesus might be the anointed one. He might be the one we were hoping for all along. And that means that in their imaginations, great things are about to happen. Because Messiah is the key to it all. When Messiah shows up, the hope of Israel, he will be a king like King David. And a prophet speaking for God, and even, like, oddly enough, King David sometimes was even a priest before him. I mean, it's, it's, all the hope of Israel is caught up in him. And he's supposed to have victory over their enemies, over those who oppress them. He is, in fact, more than that, he will come to reign over the nations. And here's the deal, not only that, but that will usher in the Lord's return, God's return. The arrival of Messiah marks the beginning of the end of all things. So little wonder. By the way, if you want to see that story played out, we're not going to read it this morning, but you could look at Zechariah 9. We're going to look at Zechariah 9 in a couple of weeks. (laughs) But you see how this is all kind of linked up very neatly in Zechariah 9. But the crowd, you can see why they're described at the end of verse 32 as being afraid. Because while they might be excited for all that, hopeful about what it could all mean, to fight a war on your own territory is a scary prospect. This isn't just a war exported somewhere else. This is going to be in their backyard. Whose fields are going to get burned? Theirs. Who's going to suffer the toll the longer that it takes? Them. It's going, in other words, they're, I mean, they're excited. They're following Jesus. They're excited about what he's doing. But, they, but the more real it gets that he might be what they really hoped for, the more scared they are. And then, in verses 33 and 34, Jesus says for the third time exactly what's going to happen to him. He told him in Mark 8. He told him in Mark 9. He's telling him again in Mark 10 exactly what will happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. And it doesn't fit the picture. What do you mean? You're going to arrive, and then the priests are going to betray you? And then you're going to die? That doesn't sound like the victory we're expecting. No wonder they're afraid. Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection very plainly. But the plainer Jesus gets about exactly what's going to happen, the less sense it makes. In other words, they loved the idea of what the Messiah should be. But when the Messiah showed up, the implications were scary. I think that pretty much describes American Christianity. We love the idea of Jesus. We love making our own image of Jesus. I mean, literally, we have cheesy paintings everywhere 
of sort of like, you know, brown hair, blue eyed, very well shampooed hair, Jesus. Uh, we, but we make him in our own image in a myriad of different ways, right? So, so Jesus is the kind of guy, we might imagine, who just accepts people for how they are and what they want. Doesn't really have a hard word for them. He's just kind to everybody. Or sometimes we think Jesus is really stern. Jesus is the guy that kind of keeps everybody straight. Or maybe you think Jesus is a Democrat (laughs) or Jesus is a Republican. But when we come face to face with Jesus himself, it's scary. Because this Jesus doesn't play by our rules. This Jesus isn't interested in those political alignments. This Jesus isn't interested in letting people's lives be. This Jesus is also not interested in people trying to prove themselves to him. The more that Jesus, the more that his actual work becomes clear, the more we see that he's determined to deal with sin. Not to leave it be. The more that we see what Jesus is doing, we realize that he is fixated on undoing evil and destroying death. The more we see what Jesus is doing, the more effective we see that his death really is to to actually destroy death itself. To undo the wages of sin. And the problem is we don't really want to look at that too closely. Because the more we do, the more we look Jesus full in the face, the more uncomfortable we become. The more it undoes our lives, the more it undoes our ambitions and reorients them towards his. The more it undoes our hopes and redefines them in terms of his kingdom the more it undoes our little projects that we spend all day working on and remakes them. Because the more we look at Jesus, the more we let the blunt impact of what he has done set in, the more we realize that our world is very small indeed. And all the things that we think give it significance, give us significance, can be pretty misleading. They're very small. No wonder they're scared. No wonder some people respond to the values of Jesus and his kingdom with fear. Because I don't want to lay aside my dreams of power, of significance, of being someone that is valued and significant before others and that has influence. I want to be the one who influences. That is not the way of Jesus. So some of us are afraid. 
The disciples, though, are stirred into a frenzy. <laughs> Do you notice that? How weird the transition is? The crowd is scared. Jesus is talking about, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die and be raised up. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jesus, when, but in your glory, on the other side of all that, right, uh, we want you to do whatever we want. I've heard this request from three-year-olds before. Uh, before I tell you what I want, will you agree to do it? Uh, and I, I guess 30-something-year-olds are, uh, are doing it here, right? And they want that, right? You see, what, what they've realized, and, and we, the passage we looked at last week, just before this, you realize they, realize they know they've given up everything. And they have. That's, that's true. They've given up their livelihood. They've given up everything. Uh, so at some level, they're not so much worried about what they might lose, but they're ready to just skip ahead. Let's just get past all that uncomfortable. We know it'll be uncomfortable. Yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> we'll be significant on the other side, right? What they're imagining here is uh, the play- to sit on their right and their left. They're imagining a royal court. See, Messiah has taken his throne, and they're imagining the, most, the two most prominent seats in that royal court. They're saying, uh, can you give those to us? <laughs> uh, no wonder the other ten are really frustrated, right, when they hear about this. Um, we've heard, we heard a little while back in, in Mark as well that they were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. They didn't learn the lesson then, I guess. But Jesus says, okay, um, you want those seats? Can you drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I'm enduring? And let me tell you, the clear answer to that question is no. The answer should be no. Because the cup is an image in Isaiah 51 and in Jeremiah 25 of judgment. It comes up again in Revelation. It's a, it's, it, is a, it is a cup that the wicked are forced to drink and get staggeringly drunk to their destruction. Jesus is drinking a cup of judgment. And baptism, though maybe this isn't obvious to us, is, is actually a sign of judgment. It is a sign of judgment that you pass through. So Jesus says in Luke 12, uh, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. That's, okay, that's obvious judgment language, right? He goes on, but I have a baptism to be, ba- and I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great my distress is until it's accomplished, right? His baptism is a judgment of fire. Uh, there's a weird passage in 1 Peter 3, 19 to 22, which I'm not going to read because... There's a lot of weird stuff going on in there, and I'm not going to explain all that. But one of the things that, he, that Peter does is connect the idea of judgment and passing through judgment with baptism. Just like passing through the flood. Like Noah passed through the flood. It's a, in other words, Jesus is saying, uh, I'm about to endure the judgment day. Can you do that? What's their answer? Oh, no, no? Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, we got it. 
We're right there with you. They're going to continue to say things like that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> as it, even as it gets worse, they're going to say, well, we're, we're not going to back away. They think they can't. And so Jesus is fine and actually accepts that they will in some sense. This is something, this is a kind of strange idea, but not actually all that strange in the rest of the New Testament. You see, on the one hand, the cross is our redemption. We don't do anything for it. Jesus died once for all, himself for us, to accomplish our redemption. And everything we need for redemption is done by Jesus there. He is judged on our behalf. But we are told to participate in the cross. And there's, there's a, a strange moment in Colossians 1, verse 24, where Paul says this. He says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. So this is the Apostle Paul saying, I rejoice that I'm suffering for your sake. Uh, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Now, if somebody told me that, and the Apostle Paul had not written it, I would be pretty uncomfortable with that language of filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. But Paul's point is not that Jesus failed to accomplish what he set out to accomplish, but rather that in space and time, how Jesus reaches individuals is through the church. And it is the suffering of the church that bears witness to him. Even Paul's suffering, right, that bears witness to him. So that Paul will talk elsewhere about being able to share in the sufferings of Christ. And he is not saying that he is doing something that Jesus failed to accomplish, but rather he's saying that he is being brought into the work of the cross. That his life is being transformed by it. And again, we kind of have to ask ourselves, is American Christianity ready for that? Am I ready for that? Do I view my life, I'm talking to those of you who are Christians, do I view my life, do I view it as a privilege that my life would be a sharing in the sufferings of Christ? And the truth is not very often, right? We're deeply uncomfortable with that. Because what he is trying to do, the problem the disciples have, the problem that we have, is we think, well, okay, there's, I know that there's some uncomfortable stuff to get through, but then it's all great on the other side, right? And there is truth to that. This is, this is so important to get, right? Suffering itself is not a good thing. It is part of the result of evil in the world but God works through it and turns it to his good ends. And it is true that on the other side of eternity is resurrection, is the new heavens and the new earth when suffering is gone, where Jesus wipes every tear from our eyes. But what suffering teaches us is a self-giving heart the heart of Jesus. And that is what endures. You see the difference? 
See, the disciples are right that the suffering itself will pass away. But what they have failed so far to realize is that what Jesus wants in them is a self-giving heart. See, their whole picture of what his heavenly throne room is going to be like is all off. It's not going to be where people are stacked one against another. Who's the greatest? Who's the, who's the best? <laughs> it is a place where people are happy to see others do well. Where they willingly give of themselves so that others can accomplish what they are hoping to accomplish. And suffering is an essential place to learn that kind of wisdom. Nobody who's lived a really perfect life is wise. Nobody. Everybody you've ever met that, that is wise in some way has dealt with adversity. Isn't this true? In some way, shape, or form. Now, there's a million different forms of adversity, right? There's all kinds of losses we can experience in life. There are tragedies. There are difficult relationships. There are sometimes acute and immediate forms of suffering, and there are forms of suffering that are long-standing, steady, over a long course of time. And any way you slice it, those are the places that we learn wisdom. And it is not because adversity itself teaches wisdom, because there are also those who have experienced a lot of bad things and are still foolish. But it is the opportunity, it is the fertile ground for wisdom to grow for the very heart of Jesus to grow. It's the place that the fruit of the Spirit, things like gentleness, patience, self-control, grow. Near the, near the beginning, and by the beginning I mean like 90 pages into the Brothers Karmazov, uh, Dostoevsky is describing this guy, Father Zosimov, and a wealthy woman who comes to him who is struggling with doubts about her faith. And his prescription for her is to strive to love your neighbor, neighbor actively. This is what he says. Insofar as you advance in love, you will grow sure of the reality of God and the immortality of the soul. This is why. Because love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. Get that? Right? Like, in other words, it doesn't have to last long. Everybody sees it. It's over quick. But active love is labor and fortitude. He's talking about love that's self-giving. He's talking about the heart of God. And what the disciples have not seen is they're in a frenzy to sort of gain things. What they haven't seen is that Jesus wants them to see that this is not about what you gain. Because that is not what he is like and that is not what his kingdom is like. The suffering will pass, but the self-giving heart endures. That is the transformation that he wants to work into his people. And so Jesus' answer to them when they, when they get to it is, look, those places are not for me to assign. 
Well, Jesus is God. He reads people's minds. He tells the future. He does other things. What? There's a couple of places like this in, in the Gospels where Jesus basically says, uh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> what do you mean that it's somebody, that the Father is going to assign these? Or it's, it's because Jesus is focused on his task. You know, the question isn't whether Jesus could figure that out or know that. Or like we said, perhaps the, his throne room is nothing like what they imagine. <laughs> uh, but that he is focused on his task. He is focused. The kingdom has focused his attention. And that is why he goes on when he gathers the disciples to say, look, leadership in my kingdom is nothing like what you see around you. It is service. You, you are there to serve others. See, the way that the world thinks about leadership is domination. Which is to say that's the way we think about what it means to be significant, what it means to be important. Augustine, uh, in the city of God, would call this the libido dominandi, the, the lust for domination, or uh, the will to power. That's the way the world works, is the will to power. Little wonder then that a famous 19th century uh, historian said that, you know, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We don't really need to review this, although we forget it all the time. We just think it's those, those people that are in power that are the problem. Couldn't possibly be me or my people if we were in charge. But greatness in the kingdom is service. This is verses 43 and 44. And, and Jesus is not saying then that it doesn't mean that you don't lead. But it's about how you lead. Do you lead in a, so that you build yourself up? Jesus isn't saying you can't, you can't pursue excellence and lead in your field or, you know, or if you have money, you just give it all away. Or if you don't, the question is how you use those things that give you influence. Are they so that you grain greater, greater domination, greater influence, greater power, or do you seek to bless others with it? It's a pretty simple leadership lesson. Not that that makes it easy. But the reason that leadership is that way is because Jesus himself is that way. Do you notice verse 45? For, the, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And get this, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the only place, verse 45, is the only place in Mark... And Matthew, Mark, and Luke may be the clearest place even still amongst those three where Jesus explains what his death and resurrection will actually do. He is going to be a ransom for many. That word, ransom, uh, 
it still has some similar connotations now, but it's to buy someone out of slavery, out of captivity. And that's what Jesus came to do, to buy back those who were enslaved. And Jesus is already thinking here, and this will become clearer through Mark, and it is certainly clear in all the rest of the New Testament writings as the disciples are reflecting back on what Jesus has done, that he is thinking about Isaiah 53. It's a famous passage in Isaiah about the suffering servant. And in particular, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus came to serve. You see, the scary thing about what Jesus is doing, or the thing that might send us into a frenzy, uh, is that it is hard. And it has rewards. You can see why some are scared by that. Others get all excited about the rewards. But Jesus is saying, the task of the kingdom should give us focus. The kingdom itself should focus us not on how we stack up against others. Not in what the cost is. But on what the task is. And Jesus' task is to give himself for us. Jesus' life will break the currency of power. What power means after Jesus' death and his resurrection is not being able to amass it for yourself, but being able to give it away. That is why those who lead must be a servant. There's a lot of lessons here for me as a pastor, for the session. But to the degree to which you have power and influence, that is what you're called to be. Someone who gives what they have for others. And you can be scared. Because it is costly, and Jesus is clear about the cost. But he is also clear about the inevitability that it will succeed. Or you can be in a frenzy about all that you might gain, about how you might really be influential after all. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. Instead, look around. Who do you need to love sacrificially? That's the question. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's those who work for you. Maybe it's even those that you work for. But the currency of God's kingdom is not power. Or better yet, it is a power reinvented, transformed by the life and death of Jesus. The currency of the kingdom is self-giving love. 
Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us to love others as we want to be loved in a way that is sacrificial. It doesn't look after our own interests, but puts the interests of others before ours. We thank you that Jesus has been a ransom for us. Teach us to see the world differently. And Jesus has transformed the currency of power in this world into a worthless thing. But instead, to live by what really matters, what we can give ourselves to others. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.